LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, are we forgetting how to read? It has become clear to me, watching my three sons navigate the world, that the way they absorb information is very different from the way I did, maybe the way you did, growing up. Video, they would say without hesitation, is simply a better mode of communication. Writing is old-fashioned, it's outmoded. They're not alone. Many of my friends report that they do not read as much as they used to. Instead of opening up a novel, they turn to Netflix in the evenings. Indeed, some friends have told me, and these are bright folks engaged in the world of ideas, that they can't remember the last time they finished a book. What has happened to us? Is reading going the way of the hammered dulcimer? And if so, is that okay? I am honestly torn on this question. On the one hand, I think whenever technology has changed communication, we have resisted that change. Socrates thought the written word was a potentially catastrophic threat to critical thinking. Of course, non-digital natives like me feel nostalgia for the good old days. But my kids have a point. Video is a great medium for communicating complex ideas and sharing appreciation for the sublime. Who's to say Breaking Bad isn't today's war and peace? And for my kids, it's not just a medium they consume, it's a language, one in which they're fluent. They shoot and edit video with ease. Who knows, maybe digital communication will prove to be more useful to them than the written word. On the other hand, I don't rule out the possibility that my kids are lazy Philistines whose minds are turning into applesauce. I fear at times that they and we are losing what my guest today, Marianne Wolf, calls cognitive patience. Marianne, who is the world's preeminent expert on reading, says deep reading is critical to our capacity to sit with ideas, digest them, work through them, and respond thoughtfully. We think, after all, in words. So more time with words, it seems, should help us think more clearly. Marianne is a professor at UCLA and the author of several books, including Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain, and most recently, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. The point she makes in those books is this. Reading is not natural. It isn't in our genes. To read, we have to repurpose neural circuits that evolved to do other things. And this unnaturalness makes reading fragile, vulnerable, difficult. We may take reading for granted, treat it like a birthright, but it's not, it's a a skill, and like any skill, you use it or lose it. This, by the way, is not hypothetical. Research suggests our collective ability to read slowly, critically, to read deeply, as Marianne puts it, has already begun to deteriorate. What will we lose if we allow it to degrade any further? Well, as Marianne sees it, a great deal like our ability to think analytically and generate new ideas, the entwined arts of patience and empathy, even our democracy may be at risk. Luckily though, Marianne believes we can find our way back to the kind of deep reading that's been so vital to our species for so long.
The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Marianne Wolf, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. What a pleasure, Rufus, to be with you. For all kinds of reasons, I look forward to this conversation and the directions you are going to guide us in. I am so happy to be talking with you today. I, I have been deep in your, in your last two books, Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain, and your latest, Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in the Digital World. And your books are both a powerful argument for the importance of reading and an expression of the joy of writing and reading because they're beautifully written. Let's make a case at the opening here for the urgency of this topic in this moment. I mean, I'm sure there are people thinking, oh, reading, that sort of is not the most exciting topic, but it is so critical. I feel this personally. I have three boys who who seem to believe that reading is a backup system if the power goes out. <laughs> uh, but you have persuaded me through your books that this is important, not just for our children, but for the future of democracy, for our nation, for our species. Yeah. And I've witnessed firsthand raising three sons that we're in this extraordinary moment where mm -hmm. the ways that we learn, the ways that we communicate, the mm -hmm. ways that we ingest information are fundamentally changing. And, and, and why does this matter? Because reading, I've learned from reading your books, is a kind of cultural innovation that we've adopted in the last several thousand years that has rewired our brains. Mm -hmm. And if we are deprioritizing reading right now, and there's evidence that we are, this means the brains of future generations are, are effectively being wired differently and maybe not for the better. Do you see this as, as an important moment, as a hinge moment? Oh, absolutely. And here is what I will do to talk to your sons and mine. For them to understand and appreciate the digital screen world is a wonderful tool that is necessary for their existence. At the same time, they don't understand what that is potentially disrupting or diminishing from what are the benefits of the other medium. So I am asking all of us in this hinge moment to understand what each medium does to change our brain. And mm -hmm. here we come back to your initial point. Literacy changes the circuit of the brain of an individual which collectively changes the way that society thinks, which over time changes the way that society works, which eventually over time changes our species and how our species thinks, acts, and behaves to one another. So the question of whether reading is important is eclipsed by the question of how will the human species 
learn mm. to preserve its best processes of thinking as it expands mm. and elaborates that very circuit with new processes. I believe the first line of the first chapter of Proust and the Squid is, we were never born to read. You go on to say, human beings invented reading only a few thousand years ago. And with this invention, we rearranged the very organization of our brain, which in turn expanded the ways we were able to think, which altered the intellectual evolution of our species. So it's this, uh, it's an argument that I had never really seen assembled in this way, because uh, I think we all know that like evolution happens over hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, not a few thousand years. So language comes naturally to a child who's born into a family, but the ability to, to read, we all know as parents, does not just happen by itself, right? So, so your, your, your argument, as I understand it, is that this is actually requires a really deeply intensive, immersive process of studying and training over the course of a decade or more to become expert readers. And in the process of doing that, we're, we're, we're rewiring our brains. And this process, which began some 6,000 years ago, really came to fruition a couple thousand years ago with the Greek alphabet, which had some mm -hmm. advantages, seems to have been an enormous benefit to our species in terms of the kind of thinking and communication it made possible. Do you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I had no idea that the 26-letter alphabet was itself a kind of open system that all of a sudden made it possible for all the spoken languages to be written exactly. down. It's an enormous intellectual epiphany mm. to be able to transcribe any language with characters and keep it as an historical memory that would be democratically available. We could now preserve and didn't have to rediscover the wheel generation after generation by carrying on through oral language the traditions and the body of knowledge. So we could have this body, our corpus, preserved, and that became a platform for going beyond it. We tend to think of reading as a singular activity, but in fact, there are many levels or degrees of depth, you might say, of reading. Can you tell us about deep reading and, and the miraculous beauty of what happens in the, in the brain when we read deeply? Yes. You know, Rufus, I'm so glad you asked that question. It all comes back to the fact that when we learn to read, we make this most basic circuit that connects visual and linguistic areas with cognitive areas and then affective areas as we elaborate over time. But we can either develop that circuit and elaborate it with everything that we read. Alberto Mangale always talks about the geometric progression that happens in reading from one book, preparing ourselves to read mm. more deeply another. Well, the brain actually does that with neuronal networks of connectivity that connect more and more cognitively sophisticated processes 
to that very basic circuit. Over time, we begin to connect all that we know, the background knowledge, and use analogical reasoning to compare it to whatever new text or new information we're getting. And there's a kind of frontal lobe dance, if you will, that's Mm. going on between what we know and what we're encountering. But that's just the beginning because in that dance, the background knowledge is happening and feeding the center, but we're using it for really important, sophisticated processes. And I say this to your sons, to my sons, to society, we are using inference. We are using deduction and induction with that, if you will, that that exchange of what we know and what we're learning. We're making inferences. Is this true? Or Mm. is this misinformation? Or worst of all these days, disinformation? We have the ability through these deep reading processes to add our own background knowledge, our inference, our deductions, our inductions to make a critical analysis of what is read. There may be little more important for a democracy than to have truly critical analytic citizens. So when we citizens of a society read something, do we deploy those very important deep reading processes that give us the ability to discern the truth and attempt to understand the thoughts and feelings of others? And you know this, Rufus, but this wonderful interview that former President Barack Obama had with one of my favorite novelists, Marilyn Robinson, he had an interview with her in which he said, I consider you, I think he used the term ambassador of empathy. And what she said was the tendency towards seeing others as Mm. enemies and not to read so that we understand others, but the tendency to see others as enemies is the greatest threat to democracy today. I was so moved by the quote you have in the book from Barack Obama Mm. in his conversation with Marilyn Robinson, in which he talks about what he'd learned about being a citizen Ah, from novels. Novels, Obama said, it has to do with empathy. It has to do with being comfortable with the notion that the world is complicated and full of grays, Mm. but there's still truth to be found and that you have to strive for that and work for that. And the notion that it's possible to connect with someone else, even though they're very different from you, right? So I do think that this is something that, you know, people can debate the relative merits of different genres, of different mediums of communication, yes. but it does feel like novels in particular are extraordinary mm. empathy exercises, more so than maybe any other medium. I, I can't agree with you more. And I say that from the standpoint of someone who like your sons and like so many in our society, I truly love film. But the novel gives us a chance to pause in the moment where the film, the screen, is always rushing us along into the next thought, the next feeling, the next scene. 
but the novel, like few other mediums. Yes, yes. It allows us to pause in the midst of that character's feelings and to experience and identify it like few other experiences. It is this incredible kind of rigorous workout in, as, as we were saying, the ability to get inside the head of another another yes. human, and and that that Barack Obama and you and I and many and many others think is critical to democracy at some level, right? Is that we're able to really inhabit to the extent that we can the thoughts and minds and experiences of other people. You know, getting back to deep reading, you you quote a few times Marcel Proust, who calls reading that fertile. Miracle of Miracle communication, communication. <laughs> affected in solitude. Yes. Our wisdom begins where that of the author leaves off. Yes. Right. So this notion that it's a duet, it's a dance, and that this is how reading is maybe different from film, maybe different from right some of these other mediums of communication, in that because it is a somewhat low fidelity medium, because mm-hmm. not everything is contained in the words, Mm-hmm. There is and there there is room and space to react mm-hmm. and fill in the blanks and push back yes. and have a kind of dialogue with that which we read. You are just putting your thumbprint, your intellectual thumbprint, Rufus, on the heart of what Proust was really trying to tell us. Very few people understand what he really got the heart of, which is, Proust was saying, we leave the wisdom of the author behind to discover our own. That's the heart of it all. And, you know, as much as I love film and and as much as I'm on the digital screen out of both intentionality and, you know, uh, there's efficiency, I do not enter and pause in that sanctuary. I think even the word pause, we go there, we stop, we think, we take the measure of ourselves along with the measure of that author's words, and we are changed. That doesn't happen as easily Mm. in other genres. To read this way, it seems to be that it's important to give ourselves permission to go slowly. I mean, quickly, perhaps, when we're excited. I love this notion that you, you talk about Italo Calvino's use of the Latin expression, <laughs> festina lente, yeah. hurry slowly, right? <laughs> I love and that when we get in this, as I'm speaking to you now, I've got a goosebumps. I've got a goosebumps. Because this, when we get in these transported moments of reading deeply, we're rushing excitedly to the next sentence and then slowing down and rolling it over and reading it again. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I, I think of, I think of how people used to, used to type with typewriters when writing the spaces between the lines. So you could go back and write in between exactly. the lines. Between. And I thought you have to read slowly enough. So there is space between the lines for you to think. It's um, all beautiful. When, when I was in, in the 1980s, uh, when I was in high school, my parents put me in a speed reading class. They thought this would be oh, good yes. for me, right? Yeah. And they, where they would train you and yeah. force you to read at these incredible speeds. And it was yeah. kind of interesting because you would actually find that you could you know, skim very quickly. Right. But I later had to unlearn the habit yes. I, yes. because I realized like, wait, wait a second, what is the objective here? Is the yeah. objective to, to uh, 
to get the, the information to get the gist of the information or are you trying to to fully absorb and interact with it are you trying to let the words mm -hmm. base to let them marinate and so i mean obviously you need to have text that's worthy of that kind of treatment right. but i think that part of what i see as a sort of beautiful thrust of your of your argument is that this particular kind of reading is also a kind of thinking oh, yes. and, a, and, a, and a form of learning that is really critical to developing human beings who can think critically and empathetically. Um, and we need this for our society. We, we want this for our children, but we more than that, we need it as a species to be able to think this way. And there's evidence that our ability to do this is eroding. Is, yes, that, it is. is that accurate? Yes, uh, it is unfortunately one of the things I would tell your sons, as I've told mine, the largest meta-analysis that's ever been done has been a compilation of over 50 studies in which, from the year 2000 to the year 2017, in which they simply looked at any study that had a comparison of the same story or text in the two mediums, print and screen, and then ask comprehension questions that got out. Did the person understand this, the plot, the sequence of details, et cetera? And the results showed incredibly that print was truly superior for that kind of comprehension. But Ackerman in Israel then looked at what these young adults thought themselves about what was better for them. And they would say, oh, we know we did better on the screen because we can read faster. Mm. And you yeah. see, yeah. there is this unquestioned assumption that speed, I think David Eulen said this, that speed is illumination. When speed is actually often skipping to the gist of the information, mm -hmm. which is all we need in a lot of things that we do, like email, mm -hmm. you know, we mm -hmm. don't need to have every word. But if it is anything that is worth its real use of deep reading, what we have done is absolutely skipped beauty. Mm. We have skipped the elaboration, the historical elaboration of arguments that led to this particular viewpoint. We have skipped the details that might even in some novels portray the very resolution of the mystery the whole work had been building towards. And there are works in which there are pauses that if you miss them, you've missed that the protagonist just, well, you know, in one, one book, one short story, I'll never forget. If you miss this one ellipsis, just an ellipsis, you don't know that this villain has impregnated the heroine. An ellipsis. <laughs> you missed yeah. an ellipsis. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you can't speed read that short story. But it is the fact that we are living in such an over-networked, mm. speeded society and culture, and I'm absolutely part of it. Yes, that, yes, yes. That we we all are. We can't remember where we left. That heart of reading, that interiority, mm. that sanctuary, we, we know it's in there because we learned it. Mm. 
Yes. But we in in neuroscience, you you have this this platitude, use it or lose it. We lose our way. Mm. We lose our way back. And that's why my book was called Reader Come Home. So many people even don't even read it enough to know why it's got that title. But it's the home that I don't want people to forget their way back to. How did Marianne find her way back home when she too lost her way? That story right after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. David Euland, who you just quoted... Yes. ...had another wonderful quote in your book. He said, to read... We need a certain kind of silence exactly. that seems increasingly elusive in our over-network society. Yes. And it's not contemplation we desire, but an odd kind of distraction, distraction masquerading as being in the know. And he goes on to say, reading is an act of resistance in a landscape, landscape of, of distraction. distraction. I yes. remember that quote so right. well. Isn't that wonderful? But it, it, I feel this. It's a, it's a radical act, it feels like, right? To, <laughs> right? It to, is a radical act. To read act. a long book, start to finish, it feels wildly anachronistic and an act of resistance, perhaps. And do you know what my sons <laughs> wanted the title of my book to be? <laughs> I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know. T-L-D-R. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, we both have, have uh, colorful conversations with our children at the dinner table <laughs> on this topic of reading. We also have to say, to be fair, that we're all struggling Everyone now, is. right, in this digital age yes. with having this kind of silence that David mm -hmm. Eulin talks about, the certain kind of silence we need. The cognitive patience is another term you use, right? The cognitive patience to, to, to do the, this kind of deep reading we're talking about. And you had your own experience, didn't you? And you went back to read one of your favorite authors, Herman yes. Hesse. 
Yes. In the Herman Hesse, I, I knew everything, you know, I, I knew it was one of my favorite books. I wasn't going to be surprised. So I could really just enter it. I thought instead it was almost paralyzing my cerebral cortex to try to get the rhythm of his prose, which is dense, it's labyrinthine, it's sometimes nauseatingly circuitous, and I couldn't read it. I was so upset with myself. And and, and I said in the book, I said, why in the world did anybody ever give him the Nobel Prize for literature? Right, right, right. Uh, well, uh, you, didn't, you didn't like it. You thought, well, maybe I was I wrong. I didn't maybe, like maybe, it. Yeah. And here it had been one of my favorite books. The, the moral, however, was I discovered I couldn't immerse myself. Mm, yeah. I couldn't. When I'm telling people to find their way back home, I was lost in my mm, own yeah, yeah. my own digital bleed over from the dominant reading mode, which is get the information fast, efficiently, and move on. Mm. And you can't do that with some novels. Some novels you can, fine. I do that on an, an airplane with a Kindle. Nothing against that. It's a relaxation of the mind. But for the immersive quality in which we really do enter others and we enter other thoughts and feelings that can elicit our own, we have to have this patience that I myself have lost, regained. I had to discipline myself for two weeks and at 20 minutes a day, and then finally I came to the point where it was like coming back home. Mm. I, I rediscovered myself. But Rufus, you have to keep disciplining yourself. I have found that if I bookend my day yes. with really an effort to enter even a paragraph or a page of theology or spiritual or philosophical reading, but something that demands nothing but my patience, mm. nothing but my thinking, and I begin that day, and it reminds me of how, and I really mean this, what a little ant we human beings are. Mm. You know, we're going to spend the rest of our day thinking how important we are and how important all the things we have to do are, and we yes, rush through yes. them, and we're distracted constantly, and then we come back and we do something, we think, oh, this is marvelous, aren't we great? Ha! Huh. We really need to come to that place where we're not the center of the world, but rather we see the world and we try on humbly other viewpoints, humbly entering if sometimes even the spiritual domain in which we feel glimpses of the transcendent, glimpses of what it is to think about the highest thoughts, but it requires absolute slowing down, and leaving the world behind. I think of it almost as a form of meditation. Oh, it is. But it's more interesting than meditation <laughs> for yeah, me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, you know, the great irony is that we're reading more than ever right now. I think you say yeah. 50,000 to 100,000 words yes. per day, which is almost like the length of a book, right? I mean, that's an extraordinary yeah. amount of reading but it's mostly not deep reading, right? It's it, it, it's, oh, a, it's a different kind of reading. Very little of it is. 
And that's a piece of what happened to deep reading right there. Because all of us are so bombarded by information, are so easily distracted by the thousand profiteers who are trying to take our distraction and, and earn something from it or use it. Because of all of that, we can't help but use skimming. And then we miss Italo Calvino's plea to us mm. to realize that, you know, the true author is doing everything they can to find the most perfect expression mm. for the, their best thought. Well, we miss all of that. And then the publishers, they realize, well, we can't read that much deeply, so the things get shorter, less dense. And I don't mean just novels. I mean, even our scientific articles are becoming shorter, less devoted to the historical argumentation. And then the authors who need to be published are changing how they write. And then what happens, and this is going full circle back to what you call that hinge moment, we change. We're reading what we're given. And it has changed because of how we learn to read with all that information. So the defense strategy and the novelty reflex that we have and this sense of being overwhelmed, which pushes us to use these familiar silos of information that just confirm our original bias, therefore we don't take perspectives of others, we end up impoverished, shallow readers. And that's the danger. I'm now going to take on the role, Marianne, of, of being a devil's advocate here uh, and engaging you in a bit of debate because although we clearly are capable of finishing each other's sentences on this topic, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the, uh, but I think it's fascinating to go back to this moment when Socrates was telling Plato mm -hmm. that the transition from the oral to, to written language threatens critical thought. It threatens a, a, a culture of dialogue that is, that is critical mm -hmm. for uh, us to be able to think clearly. Socrates mercilessly attacked those who, quote, think like papyrus rolls, being neither able to answer your questions nor to ask themselves. You write, Socrates did not fear reading. He feared superfluity of knowledge and its corollary, superficial understanding. Yeah. Which is amazing because that's exactly what we fear today, right? There's too much information. We're concerned about superficial understanding. So I can't help but raise the question, will we always feel a sense of nostalgia and loss when our modes of communication change? No. So my, my real argument is that it is not a binary print versus mm. screen. And so mm. I ask all of us, do not ever think about either or, but rather what is best for the purpose of what you're reading. And there are individual differences, there are developmental differences, but I will ask everyone, until we have still more knowledge about how to have our generation steeped in both, I plea for all of us to consider how to preserve that deep reading brain in the next generation mm -hmm. so that it can be used across mediums and with intentionality so that we don't end up 
really unidimensionally being a video culture. And I love the, the, the some of the research on what it's doing for eye-hand coordination, for speed of you know decision-making, all that's fine. But what is it doing for true comprehension, for those, those deep reading, critical analytic processes? Show me that data. And I can show you at least till this point that it is going to demand that until we know better how to have the system redress its own weaknesses, and that is going on, until we know how to do that, build deep reading brains with print Mm -hmm. for 10 years, 12 years, and then have our teachers learn how to help transfer those deep reading skills to hybrid or digital screens and really be consciously aware that we are building a biliterate brain. Until I know differently, that's how I want to preserve as we expand. So, okay, we should all be building biliterate brains, but don't feel bad if you prefer podcasts to magazines or audiobooks to print. There's a spoken word renaissance going on right now. And coming up, Marianne and I discuss why that's a good thing. Hey, folks, quick update from Next Big Idea Club headquarters. We recently launched a new podcast with our friends at LinkedIn. It's called The Next Big Idea Daily, and it's hosted by my brilliant colleague, he of the mellifluous baritone, Michael Kovnat. Every week, in 10 minutes or less, you'll get a mini masterclass in better, smarter living from thought leaders like Greg McEwen, Jonah Berger, Jesse Hempel, and Adam Gopnik. It's really a wonderful show to listen, follow the next big idea daily, wherever you get your podcasts. So there are a few areas of of hopefulness that I see when I look out into the world. One of them actually is the world of podcasting. I see um, podcasting culture as really quite reminiscent of this uh, Socratic, Socratic uh, yes, it courtyard, is. right? We had a wonderful conversation with Annie Murphy Paul, who had a wrote a great book called *The Extended Mind*, in which she cited fascinating research by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber, showing that when we think individually, we have these cognitive blind spots, mm-hmm. uh, like confirmation bias. Yes, and, and so on, where we basically, we're very good at convincing ourselves of what we want to believe when we are thinking in isolation. But we are, <laughs> we're much better, much better at being critical thinkers when interacting with others. And so when we think in groups, uh, we are much less susceptible to these, ki- this, these kinds of biases. So this push-pull of people having mm-hmm. dialogue and listening to, to others, I, I think, there, I, I think there, there are probably quite a few people, maybe some listeners now, for whom podcasts have replaced some amount of reading. And I would argue that, that that's not necessarily a bad thing um, mm, because I, I, th- I think the podcast may be uh, resuscitating some of the healthy elements of, yes. uh, of Socrates' courtyard. I can't agree with you more, and I love the analogy. And I think it's also um, it's also so exciting and hopeful to think that we are making these various courtyards available to people. I would, however, 
not I don't want to use the word pushback, but I will use the term differ. Okay. Because I do differ from the idea that podcast is an amp it can be an amplification of what was written, but you see the act of writing itself is so generative. Mm, and so yes. that is that's what what I love about writing at its best, and that's what that's what Toni Morrison said. Word work is sublime. It is generative. I I think there is something extraordinary, miraculous, this inexpressible drive we have to use lang- written language to propel our own thoughts. And I will say that is irreplaceable by any other genre, but that doesn't mean it can't be complemented by podcasts. I think podcasts will not, in my mind, replace either the writing or the reading of books that give us pause Mm. in a very particular way. One other argument I would put forward is that the power of the human voice is, mm, yes. is extraordinary. And it's yes. it's easy to forget that these modes of communication mm-hmm. that we see as sacrosanct, mm-hmm. um, we're always based on the technologies available at a given moment in time. Mm-hmm. So if audio recordings had been available several thousand years ago, mm-hmm. that might have been chosen as, as a superior. Yes, for sure. And one of my favorite conversations uh, we've had on the show is with John Calapinto, author yes. of This is the Voice. Right. And he writes and speaks lyrically about the power of the human voice, which he mm. calls molecular lasagna, oh. um, delivering, isn't that wonderful? Delivering all these layers of meaning and communication in parallel. Yes. And so talking with you, Marianne, your writing is beautiful, but in some sense, your speech to me is even more beautiful. You have mm. such varied levels of emphasis. If we were writing in text what you're saying uh, right now, we'd need like 10 different levels of italics or bold font to express all these sort of levels of emphaticness. We can feel the warmth and generosity of your attention through your voice. So I, you know, I think that though audio is worse, I think, for retention and it's mm-hmm. makes it makes rereading harder. And I think rereading is an important part of this deep reading experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think feel like there are extra layers of communication that are powerful and that maybe your sons would uh, agree with. <laughs> oh, I I have never heard the term molecular lasagna, but I will savor it. <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't have come up with lasagna, but he's absolutely correct. There is this auditory architecture to how we use our words. And when we think about the beginnings of language in the human being, the first aspect of language is music. The first thing that I almost gasped over was when my six-week-old baby, this I just happened to have a video or right there taping David, and he was going, ah, 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 ah. He was grasping music mm. in, 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 in our exchange. 
he was grasping what what we call linguistics, prosody. But yes. what it is is the melodic contour that the voice gives language. And I haven't read This Is Your Voice. I really want to. But I couldn't agree more that there are special gifts that we might call the affordances of the voice as well as the affordances of print or the screen. Yes, I love that. Well, now that I've exercised all of my devil's advocacy, I want to <laughs> confess, Marianne, that I completely agree with you in terms of the importance of, of building biliterate brains in ourselves and our children and preserving deep reading. So important. Thank you so much, Marianne, for your time today. It's just been delightful to talk with you. It was truly a joy. It was a fertile miracle of communication. Yes, it was, even though it was not in text format. Uh, imagine that. That's right. <laughs> and that's our show. To learn more about Marianne's work, visit her website, MarianneWolf.com. A quick note before I go, really a confession. When I was reading Marianne's book, Reader Come Home, it occurred to me that she might see what we do here at the Next Big Idea Club as part of the problem. We, like you, don't have time to read as many books as we would like to. So we partner with the world's leading nonfiction authors to create 10 to 15 minute audio and text summaries of their books. This at first blush feels at odds with the slow, methodical, trance-like reading that Marianne is all about. But the more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that the work we do isn't antithetical to deep reading. It's really a complement to it. More than 4 million books are published every year. 4 million. Deciding what to read can be as hard as finding time to read. That's where the Next Big Idea Club comes in. We're a collection of readers, journalists, former book editors, and we look far and wide to identify the very best new books from the best writers in the world. And then every day in our Next Big Idea app, we deliver the five key insights from a brand new book in 10 to 15 minutes of audio and text directly from the author. If it moves you, buy the book, go deeper. If not, tune in tomorrow for the next new book. Tell me what you think of this mission. Does it resonate for you? You can reach me at rufus at nextbigideaclub.com. Have you signed up for our newsletter on LinkedIn? Every Thursday morning, I take listeners behind the scenes of these episodes, provide additional insights and takeaways, and chat with curious folks like you. To subscribe, all you have to do is follow me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn. On my profile page, you'll see a link to sign up for the newsletter. It's called The Next Big Idea. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn are ambassadors of empathy. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. 